All right. Well, hey, come on back and open your Bibles. Can you hardly believe it? We're all ready to Job chapter 23. Job chapter 23. As we move through the book of Job, thanks to Xander for filling in and doing such an amazing job. And uh, we appreciate him so much. And uh, what's that? 23. Job chapter 23. That's where we'll be. And, um, oh, here, that Job calendar in your book, your Bible. Let me have that for a sec. I meant to come get it. So here we are. We're moving through the book of Job, and we're in the part called the the dialogue section, all the way from chapter 4 through chapter 37. Remember, this is probably the oldest book of the Bible. It doesn't contain the oldest material, that's Genesis, but it was probably written first. And here's Job in his dialogue section with his three buddies. What buddies they are, huh? And this happens through around chapter 4 through around chapter 37. And I passed this out at the first um, uh, meeting that we had on the book of Job, and we're in cycle three of his back and forth between his buddies, his buddies being Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. In cycle three, actually, one buddy substitutes in for Zophar, and that's a guy named Elihu, but we won't get there tonight. We are in the cycle number three of this back and forth between Job and his friends. Uh, We just finished up, we just... uh, Uh, started talking about how Job was answering, uh, Job was answering his friend Eliphaz in cycle three. Here's what I want you to know. I think you really probably want to pay attention to this part and then maybe phase out after, but why, why does he continue on with this cycle of back and forth and really his friends keep putting forth the same argument. And the argument is that tight, concise, tidy, bow-packaged uh, theology that says God is perfect and just. If you do good, you'll get good. If you do bad, you won't get good. You'll do get bad. Bad things will come into your life because God is perfectly just. End of story. That's the theology. And it's wrapped in a package, and it's nice and neat and concise. And, you know, it's easy for the person or the counselor or the pastor to say, okay, here are the three keys. You do these three things, and everything's going to work out. And then there's this back and forth with that same sort of tight packaged surfacy theology that Job just continues to battle against. And sometimes I think we say to ourselves, come on, man, can we just get to Job 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, where we can see the good part? I mean, right. Isn't it right? That's what we're saying. And you might even be saying that to me. Can we just go fast and get through that? And yet... In the midst of these long, tiresome conversation or conversations that are over and over, 
it's just the way trials are, isn't it? I mean, a trial comes into your life, and it's new, and you start to dissect it a little bit, and that's kind of like Job chapter 1, 2, and 3, and then, oh, we love it when we come out the backside of a trial, and we can proclaim how good God is, but you know, if I put my, ask you to put your hand up and say, who's going through a trial, a temptation, or a hurtful time, I'll bet you 90% or more of the people in here would raise their hand. The point being, life's lived in the trials <laughs> a lot of the times. Life's lived in the mundane. Life's lived uh, when not all of our ducks are in a row. And then what do we do? And I think that's one of the things just because of the snail's pace at which Job and his friends continue to go forward in the book of Job, that, that the Lord's teaching us. He's encouraging us, look at this, not to panic inside the trial or the temptation. Because that's where life's lived. We live in a fallen world with fallen people who do bad things. By the way, don't point your finger at other people. We do bad things. And there's, without the Lord in our lives, right, we're capable of some really dastardly stuff. And you know we've been talking about this on Sundays. Also, that there's things that lurk in our hearts still that surprise us and shock us. And this is where we live. We live in these things, and people do bad things, and Things happen to us, and we reap what we sow, and disasters happen, and things happen, and we lived in this, and this is where we live. And I think one of the things is God is saying to us is don't get too fast to get to the high points. It is great to be in the high points. Who here, I mean, I love being at the high places or, you know, the, the, the mountaintop retreats, of course. But life's lived here. We always said that, you know, as we sent several kids out to California. We just came back from the place, and it's beautiful, and it's awesome. And the Bible college out there is just so perfect. It's like, it's like Christian utopia. And the kids would come back and say, man, why can't it be like that? But that's the point. It's not like that. You have to come outside of the gates sometimes. That's where life's lived, and that's what I think Job is saying. He's teaching us not to panic in the trials. Another thing I think, or I want you to consider here, something I've never considered before this week. You know this in the back and forth, in the back and forth between Job and his friends. The friends are entirely consistent in their theology and their speeches. It never deviates. They're consistent. Job isn't consistent. You're like, well, what's the big deal? They've got their tight little theological package put together, and they just bring it, you know, they trot it out at every occasion and plop it on a platter to people and say, here, this is what's wrong. And it's neat and tidy and a bow's on it. And if you get it that way, oh, everybody, everything's so easy. Why don't you just follow the, open up the package and you'll be fine. Job's not like that, did you notice? Sometimes he's like on his face in the dust. He could hardly move, of course, physically. And his soul is hurting from the people that he's lost and the things that he's lost, right? And you 
move forward. Uh, he seems to be moving forward, and there's these little glimpse of, glimpses of faith, and then the next minute, like the next paragraph, the next verse, he's down in the dumps again. And you say, come on, Job, and yet, folks, that's us. That's life. There's a lot of complex things that we're dealing with. Our mind, our emotions, our will, our soul, our body, and all those things mixed together. And we live in a fallen world with fallen people who do bad things to us, and we do bad things, and we have things that are happening inside of us, and it's not always packaged so perfectly the answer. Or so it seems. I mean, here he is wrestling. Can you imagine this man wrestling with undeserved suffering? He's only one of the four people, mostly, that we hear from in this book that really knows that he didn't do anything. There's no hidden sin. And yet the three friends are convinced that he's got a hidden sin. And if he'll just say it, everything will go back and be right. And if you'll just con- uh, you know, uh, uh, confess it, everything will go back and everything will be right. But he's wrestling with this. It like, it like puts him into the rinse cycle of life. You know what I mean? He's just spinning around and ducking over, and then he's, he pops his head up, and he can see for a minute, and here comes some faith, and the next moment, moment he's back into spin cycle. His speeches, if you read them, they're full of pain and rage and frustration and perplex. He's perplexed. But then just follow along with me. Just go, go to chapter 9. And look at verse 33. All of a sudden, out of his anxiety and pain, he says, or look at 32, For he is not a man that I I may answer him, that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Man, if there was just a mediator, Job says. And all of a sudden, At the very time, think about this, folks, at the very time when Job thinks God's the farthest away, God is bringing up in and through him and speaking through him about the mediation or the mediator, Christ Jesus. At the very time he thinks God's the farthest, God's using him to espouse an amazing truth that if there was only a person who could lay their hand on man and lay their hand on God, and it was only one, it was Jesus. Isn't that incredible? What about this? Look over at chapter 16, verses uh, 18 and 19. Remember this one? O earth, do not... Cover my blood and let my cry have no resting place. Surely even now my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high. Uh, My uh, friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. If only there was somebody who would plead on my behalf, an advocate. Jesus Christ, our great advocate. At the very times, he's the lowest. Look in 25 and 27 of chapter 19. The very times we're lowest. 
For I know that my Redeemer lives. This is God-inspired right here, folks. I know that my Redeemer lives. Not only do I have a Redeemer, but He's a living Redeemer, and He will, shall, stand at last on the earth. He'll be here. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I'm going to have a bodily resurrection, and I shall see God. That's the whole story of the Bible right there. All these glimpses are coming out of faith. There's one more I'll turn you to. 23, chapter 23, the last one that we talked about before we went to California. Oh, that I, verse 3, that I knew where I might find him. Philip asked the same question in John 15, right? And we went through all of that. If you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen the Father. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. Remember, in verse 10 of this very chapter, he says, uh, oh, excuse me, verse 8, look, I go forward, but he's not there. The reality for Job was that he looked forward, he couldn't find him, he looked backward, I couldn't perceive him. And he, when he works on the left hand, I can't behold him, and when he turns to the right, I can't see him. But he knows, verse 10, the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Now remember one thing that we said very early on. It we're dealing with the big issues of life, the questions of life. Where is God when things happen? And one of the things that we've said is the question is not to ask, why do bad things happen to good people? No, never ask that question. Ask this question, why do good things happen to bad people? Because we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. It's not, why do bad things happen to good people. We're not good. There's no one good. No, not one. It's why do, does anything good happen to a bad person? We're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And you look here and you say, where might I find him? When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. We also said the question to ask or the, the question to, uh, that helps us in the suffering or the answer or the, uh, that's not the, the thing that helps us in the suffering is in we can't see anything in the suffering that's purposeful. It's really toxic. But if we can see that there's a purpose in the pain, it somehow elevates us and brings us to this place where well, at least we can move forward in it. And what, what am I talking about? Well, in New Testament parlance or New Testament language, I'm talking about 1 Peter 1. Peter spells this out for us that there's purpose in your pain. He says it right in the first chapter of 1 Peter. Go, go there. 1 Peter 1, you want to write this down. You want to make sure you know this. Look in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved. Think of the word grieved, folks, when you read this. That word means a heavy experience of pain. Who here has had a heavy experience of pain? Yes. 
In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, not just one. If you're, <laughs> there's a lot coming at you, Peter says. That the gen, what's the purpose in the pain? You can always find a purpose in the pain. You say, well, that's easy for you to say, you're the pastor. Yeah, well, what about Johnny Erickson Tata? She dives, she's a, Awesome young lady, very athletic, dives off a dock in the Chesapeake Bay and boom, breaks her spine and she's a paraplegic or quadriplegic her whole life. And she just sings God's praises. She is in massive pain every single day of her life, always in pain. She's had breast cancer. She's currently going through it again, I think. She's had COVID. COVID... When you read about what she went through with COVID, my goodness. And all she does is sings, God, sings God's praises. She knows that there's something more precious than gold. Gold perishes, though it is tested by fire. There it is. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. That sprung forth out of Job's life. It pulsed in his life. Here comes some faith in the middle of this terrible thing or these terrible things that have happened to me. He says, oh my goodness, I can see there's something that's purposeful. I'm going to come out more as gold, purified, because of what Peter knew, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, don't you want this for your life? Don't you want this do you want your faith to be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation in his word of Jesus, but also when he comes back at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Oh, man. And the only way your faith is tested as fire or, or becomes gold in the fire is to be tested, folks. I got news for you. If you want to be a sub five minute miler, you can't just show up at the track and trot around and go for five, or did I say five mile? Five minute miler. You can't just show up at the track. You'll run out of steam. You'll never, you'll be a 15 minute miler or a 20 minute miler. What do you have to do? You're, you, you get in the arena. God says, man, the currency of heaven is faith. And I'm starting with you now, because I love you that much. That's what the Lord says. Well, see, Job, back in Job chapter 23, verse 10, he, this comes forth in his life. And then he says, my foot, verse 11, is held fast to his steps. I've kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth, mouth more than any or my necessary food. But he is unique, and who can make him change? This is all true, isn't it? And whatever God, his soul desires, that he does, divine sovereignty. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Therefore, I'm terrified at his presence. Listen, if what you're telling me, friends, Job says, is true, uh, then I shouldn't have any problems. Do you understand what the, the argument? If what you're telling me, if your theology is right, Job says, then I shouldn't have any problems, but why am I terrified? 
because I know I live and things happen, and sometimes there's uncaused suffering. And when I consider this, I'm afraid of him, and I think that speaks of the awesomeness of God, for God made my heart weak. You say, well, that doesn't seem very faithful. Actually, I think it's very faithful. What did Jesus say you must be to start out in the Christian life? You must be spiritually bankrupt. He says, poor. Blessed are the poor in the Sermon on the Mount. Job's like, hey, I realize I'm weak. I need you. But the Almighty terrifies me. That's good. I mean, he's in, I'm in awe of him because I wasn't cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not uh, hide deep darkness from my face. He goes, yes, I recognize. I don't understand all this. It's dark. I don't, I don't get it all. But... I know there's a purpose, and so I can continue on. And so here he comes, and he says this. He's going to ask these big questions. There are questions you've asked. There's questions I've asked. Why are you silent, God? And why don't you judge evil? Here it comes. Listen to this. Since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his days? Some remove landmarks. They seize flocks violently and feed on them. Now, catch what he's saying here. There are people here, excuse me, excuse me, the Almighty, you know, nothing's hidden from him. Time's not hidden from him. He sees it all. Why do those who know him see not his days? Why don't they come to their end? Look at this. And now he goes through and he talks about what evil people do. Some remove landmarks. You know what that means, right? Back then they had landmarks to mark property. And at night, they'd sneak out and move the landmarks a little bit so they'd have more property. That's what he's saying there. They seize flocks violently and feed on them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. When you read this, what happens to you? No one else gets mad? I'm like, golly. They take the widow's ox as a pledge. They push the needy off the road. All the poor of the land are forced to hide. Indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to their work searching for food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. They gather their fodder in the field and glean in the vineyard of the wicked. They spend the night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They're wet with showers of the mountains and huddle around the rock for want of shelter. Now, you know this, right? He's saying here that rich people oppress these defenseless people and these poor people, and they're getting away with it. Listen, some snatch the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge from the poor. They cause the poor to go naked without clothing, and they take away the sheaves from the hungry. They press out oil within their walls and tread winepress, yet suffer thirst. The dying groan in the city, and the souls of the wounded cry out. And here's the key verse. Catch it. This applies, man, to you and to me. Have you ever asked this question? Like, here you are. You're a senior in high school, and you did your work, and you blah, 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 and you, you get here, and you, and you want to go to this college. But, and, 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 and all these other people are going to the great college, but you don't get to that college, but you get to this college. Don't you say, why do they get to go there, and I get to go there? I did all the right stuff, and look, they're doing their stuff. Or you say it in business. Don't you say it in business? Why does, you know, what name can I use? Why does he, don't want to say it, why does he get the bonus at Christmas and I don't? I, I mean, come on, I was faithful, Lord. I, 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 but he gets the bonus. It makes no sense. Why does he get the husband and I don't? 
Why does he, or why does she, why does she get the husband and I don't? <laughs> there you go. Why does, why does she get the baby and I don't? Why does, why does he, he get the girlfriend and I don't? Folks, we say this stuff. Don't we say this stuff? Why does the, I do all the right things, God. You notice when we talk like that, we are not living by grace. It's reverse <laughs> works theology. You're trying to put God into your debt when we could never put God into debt to us. That's all these things that are happening. Here he says, yet God does not charge them with wrong. And what Job is saying is not that he's upset about that particular thing. What he's saying is you friends have no idea about theology because if your theology was right, how come all, it's not just me, since you won't believe that I have no unconfessed sin, I look all around. He says, study the countryside. All these things are happening in the countryside. And yet these Evil guys and gals, they get away with it, and God doesn't charge them. So it can't be what you're saying. Your theology is all wrong. There are those who rebel against the light. They don't know its ways, nor abide in its path or paths. The murderer rises with the light. He kills the poor and needy. And in the night, he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight. People like men love the darkness, John tells us. We're like the ultimate cockroaches of life. <laughs> Turn on the light and watch what happens to the cockroaches, man. They go for what? They go for the darkness. And so the eye of the adulterer here in verse 15 waits for the twilight, saying, no one will see me, and he disguises his face. And in the dark, they break into the houses which they marked for themselves in the daytime. They don't know the light, for the meaning is the same to them as the shadow of death. If someone recognizes them, they are in the terrors of the shadow of death. And look here, now we go into verse 18 through 25, Job shifts gears, and he's convinced, watch, he tells them right thinking, that the just will come to, or justice will come to the wicked. Watch this. They should be swift on the face of the waters. That kind of means like they're going to be flushed out. <laughs> their portion should be cursed in the earth so that no one would turn into the way of their vineyards. Don't you say this at night or you say this about the evil one who gets things that you don't? You say it's not fair. I hear it. It's not fair that they do and I don't. It's not fair that she does and I don't. It's not fair that he does and I don't. Anybody ever said that? Well, that's what Job is doing right here. He's saying, he's calling for fairness, verse 19. As drought and heat consume the snow waters, it's like a principle. So the grave consumes those who have sinned. The womb should forget him. The worm should feed sweetly on him. He should be remembered no more and wickedness should be broken like a tree. For he preys on the barren who don't bear and does no good for the widow. Rabbit trail. What's pure and undefiled religion? Ministering to orphans and widows. See, God has a heart for the underdog here. But verse 22, God draws the mighty away with his power. He rises up, but no man is sure of his life. He gives them security and they rely on it, yet his eyes are on their ways. 
Here's what Job is saying. Job's getting around to it now. He's saying, hey, friends, my theology is right, he's saying. He's saying it probably nicer than I would say it. And they, the wicked, even though right now they're not getting what they seem to deserve, which proves my point, Job says, in the end, they will get what's coming to them. Folks, the Bible tells us here as we live here now, and, and, and live on this side of the cross, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Leave it to the Lord to work all of those things out. You will be free if you'll just leave it to the Lord. The grudges we hold, the unforgiveness we don't give, uh, the hurts and the slights that you think are hurts and slights against you that the other person couldn't even, doesn't even know hurt or slight you. They are not even paying attention, but it's wedged in your heart somewhere. And, and what the... What Job is teaching us here, I think, is that someday God will give justly to those who deserve justice. (laughs) So you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to be the judge and the avenger. God can just be it, and you could live freely, unencumbered. Uh, you, You know, all those things can just fade away so you can run the race real lightly. If you're out to run the five minute mile, do you want you know, a weight vest on your back or do you want light shoes, light shorts, light shirt? You want light. And that's what he's saying. Let's, let's lighten up here because I'll take care of it, God says. And Job starts to recognizes, recognize it in verse 23. He says, his eyes are on their ways. They're exalted for a little while, verse 24. Then they're gone. Gen- justice eventually will come to the wicked. They're brought low. They're taken out of the way like all others. Justice can be delayed, but it won't be denied. He recognizes this. They dry out like the heads of grain. Now, if it's not so, who will prove me a liar? In other words, who can deny that the wicked should get justice? Nobody could. And make my speech worth nothing. Now, he comes to chapter 25, or we come to chapter 25, and we see the final speaker here in this third debate, really. It's Bildad. He's already talked a couple times. And he just, it's real short and to the point. And here comes the tight little, tidy, packaged theology. It's like this big. It's not the big pick present. It's just got a little bow on it, and it says this. But you don't get it, Job. Here's what he says. Dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. In other words, God's all-powerful, and there's no point in fighting him, Job, Just like he's been saying over and over again. Is there any number to his armies upon whom does uh, his light not rise? No, he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing and he knows what you've done. That's what this tidy, tight, beautiful little packaged, it's called the three keys to living your best life. It's sold in the bookstores and it sells a million copies every other day. And the problem is, it doesn't respond to the heart here. It, it has no connection with the person. And then he goes on and he says, and he talks about God's justice again. How can a man be righteous before God? It's like, Job, come on, buddy. You can't be. And, and the funny part about this is, Bill Dad's right. 
but he's using it as a weapon. You get it? Who here could say that they're righteous before God? None of us could, because none of us are righteous. No, not one. But Bildad here uses his theology. Isn't this sad? Isn't this, oh, it's my favorite word for the sin-sniffing, heretical heresy hunters in the church. It's icky. It just is gross, man. Stop it. (laughs) Connect with the person you see. Connect with the person. How can a man be righteous before God? Of course a man can't be righteous. But what this guy's saying is, "Ah, there's some hidden sin back there. Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? Of course nobody can be pure. Psalm 51 tells us uh, that, you know, we were born in iniquity. But remember, Job isn't claiming perfection. He's claiming forgiveness. He was a guy who sacrificed. We know that from chapters 1 and chapters 2. And then it comes here. It comes to this. If even the moon doesn't shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is a maggot? See, that's all the, always the way of the tight, beautifully little packaged, quick off the lips theology that never connects with the person. You're a maggot. You're just lowest of the low. And really, don't you get the sense when people are doing that, they're just trying to put you down so they can feel better. There's no getting down and, you know, face level with you in the hurt and the pain, just trying to hug you and mourn with you. It's just, here you are, and here I am spiritually, and I'm way above you. You're just a maggot. How much less a man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm. What a friend. What's really interesting about this, to me, is out of the mouth of Bildad comes the gospel. We are unrighteous. There's none righteous. There's no, not one. The Bible says we're sinners. We're Our hearts are deceptively wicked. The evil, uh, the one who does evil will surely die, Ezekiel tells us. 88 times or so in the Bible, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Psalm 22 is so fantastic, it just should delight you over and over again. It starts out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Sound familiar? It's what Jesus uttered from the cross. It's written about 800 or so years prior to the time of Jesus. But there's this inner, it's a messianic psalm. You might want to turn there because in verse 6 of Psalm 22, well, my, my God, my God, verse 1, why have you forsaken you? Why are you so far from helping me? It sounds like Job, doesn't it? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, verse 2, but you don't hear. And in the night season, I'm, and I'm not silent. But you are holy. Remember, he said he was terrified. Enthroned in the praises of the Lord. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and you were delivered. They trusted in you and you were not ashamed. Here it comes, verse 6. This is a messianic psalm. 
it's written by David, but it's as if the Messiah is speaking from the cross. He says this, but I am a worm and no man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. So yes, how much, if you turn back to Job, see the gospels uttered through the friend Bildad and he doesn't even know it. He's using the theology as a weapon And he uses this word, how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm. He uses a word there in the Hebrew. You probably all will want to know this. It's a word called toloth or tola. Do you know this? It's the same word that's used over in Psalm 22. Do you know when the high priest was to prepare his garments He was to prepare his garments, and they had to have three colors, I think, in him, and one of them was scarlet. Do you remember this? That's from Exodus. Guess what the word is? Toloth. Do you remember when they prepared the veil? They had some scarlet in it, some scarlet thread, and they had the word toloth there. It's the same word. Why is it the same word? Red, scarlet, worm, what are we talking about? Well, because there was this species of worm that this word represents. And it's how they made uh, scarlet dye. And what this worm would do, is this fascinating or what? It would crawl up a tree, attach itself to the side of a tree. It would lay its eggs, and then it would cover it up. It would cover up her eggs. She would sleep over top her eggs. And when the eggs were born, they had to have something to eat. They ate the mama. The mama left a red streak on the tree. That's toloth. (laughs) And that's how they got their scarlet dye. They would extract it from that. That's how they got their scarlet dye. That's how they made the scarlet stuff, you know. Their, their clothes, their linen, whatever it was, that's how they did it. By the way, some say after that streak was there and the weather got to it, it would turn bright white and then slowly fade away. That's interesting. Though your sins are like scarlet. And so when you go back here, you're like, whoa, wait a second here, Bildad. You are using this theology as a weapon, and yet the Lord is turning it around for good. He's going to send the Son of Man who came as a worm out of the heavens. Think of it, folks. The richest of rich, the creator of all, comes out of the heavens for one purpose, and the purpose is sitting here right now. His bride. In... Corinthians, it says this, for you knew the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, I want you to think about that. How rich was he? (laughs) He's the creator. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. How poor? Oh, good. You're looking up Toloth. That's good. (laughs) It's okay. It's no problem. How, How rich? That rich. How poor? He became a worm. He became a worm. For your sakes, he became poor 
a worm that through you, his poverty, or that through you through his poverty, shoot, shoot, might become rich. Here he is, he's saying you're a maggot. There is this sense in which we are worms, we're sinners, and that the Bible tells us because of Jesus Christ becoming a worm and then becoming a lamb and then dying on the cross, look, he propped all of us up so that we're no longer maggots, we're children of the king. Wow. We're royalty spiritually. In Christ. There's this tension. We know we're sinners and yet we're saved by grace, so we're children of the King. We have access that other people don't have access to. We have His heart. We have access to His heart through the blood of Jesus Christ. Others don't. It's miraculous. And so, here, right here, you see the gospel uh, played out in a friend who tries to slam him with theology. Well, one more thing. Chapter 26, Job uh, is now just tired, and he's had enough, and so he's going to answer Bildad, and he says this, how have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? To whom have you uttered words, and whose spirit came from you? This is He's being sarcastic here, he's like, Oh my goodness, who have you helped, man? You haven't helped anybody. In 5 through 13, he talks about the power and wisdom of God. Look at this. The dead tremble, those under the waters and those inhabiting them. Sheol is naked before him. Sheol is naked before him. That's the place of the dead. And destruction has no covering. This is, let let me just tell you something. We don't, we've got five minutes to cover this. This would take you a lifetime to cover the rest of this chapter. Here's why. Because Job here is referring to the ancient mythologies and how they thought the world was created. And he's trying to say to his friends, here's what you think. You have this night nice, tidy, neat theology, and you just believe in this, be moral, be good, and everything will be fine, and you have this real limited view of God, but if you really understood the big picture, you'd be wowed or awed in God's grace. Because you believed in certain things, or at least the ancients did, that Sheol was made by certain deities, But Sheol is naked before him. Do you see it? And destruction has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty space. Do you get what he's saying there? He's saying that all of heavens and the place where judgment takes place, because that's where his throne is, all of that, he stretched over. There was nothing. Listen, I know nothing about engineering or math. But I do know this. Big buildings have to be attached to something. Pretty smart, right? Here, or, or, bit, or bridges, the suspension and the wires and the poles. Oh, I mean, a whole baseball game was shut down for 30 minutes the other day because a net fell down. And they didn't know how to attach it. But right? So what, what I'm saying is, 
he stretches out the north over empty space. They thought certain deities made the heavens. <laughs> he hangs the earth on nothing. <laughs> you ever thought about that? I know we got smart people here who talk about and try to explain to me why the earth can be suspended right there, but when I look at it on a, you know, on a picture or something, I'm thinking to myself, how in the world does that stay there? He, he hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in these thick clouds, yet the clouds aren't broken under it. Sometimes there's clouds and there's no rain coming out of it. How? Yet the clouds are not broken. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters. If you took the time, he's, he's referring here to a lot of mythological um, ideas that they had about how the earth was created. At the boundary of light and darkness, verse 11, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. He stirs up the sea with his power. He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding, he breaks up the storm. By the way, the sea was always a picture of chaos in the Bible. Did you know that? And what he's saying here, Job is, is, hey, folks, God can bring order out of massive chaos. They were very afraid of the sea back then because they thought that represented evil and chaos and destruction and mystery and all of that sort of thing. What else goes on here? By his spirit, he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Now, that's fascinating. This is some obscure reference to some sort of ancient serpent that was defeated by God. You could look in Isaiah 51.9 and Psalm 89, 8-10 that also speak of a serpent associated with the sea that God defeated to demonstrate great strength and identifies this serpent with the name Rahab. You ever read a book with Rahab in it? Okay, well, this is where it comes from. The name Rahab, and that name Rahab means proud one. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways, and how small a whisper we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? I got two points, and I'm going to let you go. See, they have this tight, neat, tidy, theological, three steps, three keys to happiness. If you just do these three and you follow, you're going to be happy and smart and prosperous and everything will be good. If you have any hidden sin, and we know you do, Job, you're going to get bad stuff. And Job just blows that out of the water. And then he says, if you'll study this chapter, and I'm not doing a great job of it, you have this limited theology, and lots of it's true. But you aren't thinking of the great big picture. You're just thinking moral, do good, get good, do bad, get bad. And he's saying, don't you know this is the one who created everything, everything up there. He hung this planet where shouldn't anything could be hung. There's nothing supporting it. It's not on flat. It's, it's in the middle of the universe. And there's something going on more than just do good, get good, do bad. Good. It's this. It's that he has this issue in the cosmos, and that's evil. And you and I hate it. We watch TV, and we see this bad stuff, and we evil is here. 
And God's going to come and defeat evil. And we've studied the book of Revelation over the last six months. There's a future, and he's going to do all of the judging, and he's going to come back and judge, and then set up a millennial kingdom, and then throw the enemy of our souls into the lake of fire with those who don't follow him, and we're going to live with him in a new heaven and a new earth. And the point is, if you're just looking to theology like this under a microscope and you don't have the big picture, you're never going to be free. But if you'll keep that in mind always, even when you're going through the suffering, which is for a little while, although it feels like it's not for a little while, just ask Johnny Erickson Tada. When you're going through the suffering that's just for a little while, if you recognize you have all of that to spend with him, he's going to defeat evil, and he's going to come and live among us where there's no need for a son anymore because he's here, God with us. In other words, that's the purpose. <laughs> wow. We live dishes and diapers and bills and rent and cars and dings and COVID, and we get down here and we forget to see and remember it's way out there and we're a part of it. Can you believe that God has chosen us to be a part of it? Let's pray. Well, Lord, thanks so much. <laughs> that we get to be a part of this, your plan, your purposes. And Lord, I don't know, I just... You, you even spoke to Job in unimaginable pain. Whew. So Lord, there are people here who are suffering. There are people listening who are suffering. Lord, help us to be great listeners. Great lover of people who are hurting by your power and your spirit. May we come along and not just always talk, 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 but hug and love and serve and give them a meal. Yes, share the gospel with them, of course. But Lord, not everything's so simple all the time. We think it is. We think we know it all. Lord, we live as part of a big thing that you're doing. <laughs> May we remember that you're coming back, that we're going to live with you forever, and that in the middle of our suffering, you're refining us and purifying us. Help us to lay down our lives so that you can do your glorious work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.